Welcome to the Bayshore Podcast. As listeners each week, whether through iTunes or through the church app, you're part of our church family. We would love for you to share stories of how Bayshore is impacting your life by sending us an email at amen at bayshorecc.org. As always, you can find all kinds of information and content on our website, bayshorecc.org. There's also our church app, which you could download by going to bayshorecc.org slash app. So thanks again for joining us this week, and we hope that today's message is a blessing to you. So today we're going to continue our series called Mega Transitions, and this is a study in the book of 1 Samuel. We're looking at different stories. One of the philosophies we have at Bayshore is to, is to look at Scripture, to learn what Scripture says, and then get application from it. So we're in a, a study in 1 Samuel. So uh, 1 Samuel is about transitions, and so that's why it's called Mega Transitions. But today we're going to be looking at uh, parts of a story, uh, chapter 4, chapter 5. Uh, of uh, some interesting stories in these Old Testament stories that have a lot of application for us. So I want to read a little bit to you, and then we'll start our message. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is the first part of uh, the message this morning. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The Philistines captured the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and the battle spread. Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that we may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant, the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim, and Elias' two sons, uh, Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Then 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. And the Philistines captured the Ark. They took it to Ebenezer, uh, to, from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they came to the Ark. Uh, they carried the Ark to Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Uh, when the people of Ashdod rose the early next morning, there, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him in his place. But the following morning they rose. There was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. That is why to this day neither the priest of Dagon nor any of the others who entered Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy upon the people of Ashdod and, and, and its vicinity. He brought devastation to them and afflicted them with tumors. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of God of Israel must stay here with us because his hand is heavy upon us on Dagon our God. So they called together the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And then uh, just a few more verses here. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19 through 21. But God struck down some of the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because the heavy blow of the Lord was dealt on them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, Why, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord of this holy God? To whom will the ark go from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kirath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So today we're going to be talking about uh, different versions of God. What is our version of God? What do we? I think everybody has a version of what they think God is like. 
I think if we were to ask people, you know, what, what is God like? People would come up with these, these versions of what they think God is. And I think many times we have a, an incomplete or maybe even a wrong version of God. What is God really like? Who is God? And so we want to look at these stories, these Old Testament stories, to look at what is an accurate version of God. And I think these stories give us some help. I remember when uh, Karen and I lived in uh, Pensacola, Florida, when we were going to Baba College, and uh, back when we were newly married, uh, we went to a great church. We loved our church. It was a, a lively church, good Bible preaching church. We had lots of friends in the church. And we loved our pastor. His name was Ken Summerall. And uh, Ken Summerall uh, was just a very great communicator, taught the Bible. He was telling us one Sunday that he had this dog, this this German shepherd dog, and her name was Heidi. And Heidi was constantly getting out and running away, just wandering away, and they were constantly chasing Heidi around the neighborhood. And he said one day he was riding through the streets of Pensacola, and he rode by a house, and there was Heidi, you know, a couple blocks away in somebody's backyard. So he thought, oh my goodness, he pulled his car up there, went to the fence, the people weren't home, and so he's, you know, he called Heidi to the fence, somehow she'd gotten over in the fence, and so he tried to, you know, get her to come and you know he's pulling her over the fence and she's not one to come and finally he gets her over the fence and and gets her in the back seat of the car and she didn't really want to get in the back seat of the car and he drove home and with Heidi in the back seat and when he pulled in to the driveway uh, who was to see him in the yard but Heidi it was Heidi he had the wrong dog so uh, it looked like Heidi but it wasn't Heidi so, you know, he told his son, Stanley, Stanley, take this dog back, you know. <laughs> so I think sometimes, you know, we, we, you know, we get the wrong thing. We get the wrong version. Uh, one of the things that uh, I'm interested in, I have a degree in history and I love history. Uh, one of my favorite parts of history is English history. Uh, around the 1600s, King, King Henry VIII. Uh, here's a picture of King Henry VIII. A lot of us know about King Henry VIII. Uh, what he's most famous for, a couple of things. Uh, one of the things he's really famous for is he brought Protestantism to, uh, to England. England was, uh, was uh, Catholic before that. But the reason he brought Protestantism to uh, England wasn't so much a religious conviction, but uh, because the Pope wouldn't give him a divorce from his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And here's a, a list of uh, Henry's wives. He had six wives, and uh, I don't, can't remember who's who here, but uh, Catherine of Aragon was the, was the, was the granddaughter of uh, uh, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, who gave the, the, the right for uh, Henry to, or, or for Christus, Christopher Columbus to come here. But what's interesting about uh, Henry VIII is, you know, he killed two of his wives. The second wife, you know, Anne Boleyn, he loved Anne Boleyn. He was in love with her. She was uh, kind of dismissive and wouldn't uh, submit to his uh, physical wishes. So he ended up marrying her, and hopefully she was going to provide him with a male heir, and she didn't. Of course, he, he, she had a, a little girl, and how many know what that little girl's name is? Her name was Elizabeth, and he uh, actually had Anne Boleyn killed. This is Anne Boleyn there. But his, uh, his, his fourth wife, this is uh, Anne of Cleves. Now, the reason this woman is interesting, uh, this is Jane Seymour. Jane Seymour finally had the, uh, had the right, uh, had, had a male child, Edward, and she died shortly after childbirth, and then, he mar then he, they had needed a fourth wife. And so uh, his, his, his main courtier, uh, his main administrator was Thomas Kramer. Thomas Kramer 
um, wanted to get him a wife from Germany because he wanted to build an alliance between uh, England and Germany. And so what happened was uh, Thomas Kramer wanted him to marry Anna Cleves, and he had never seen Anna Cleves. So they sent a, they sent a painter, and the painter goes to Germany and paints a picture of Anna Cleves. And the picture evidently didn't really match the woman. So when, when uh, he saw the picture, wow, she's fine. What a good-looking gal and all of that. But evidently the picture that the painter uh, had painted didn't really adequately represent uh, Anne of Cleves. And so when she showed up, it was a surprise to Henry VIII. And his words were simply this, I like her not. I like her not. <laughs> Their marriage lasts from January to July. She didn't make a whole year. And he got rid of her, and uh, she was smart enough to, to give him a divorce, and the state took care of her the rest of her life. Now, it's an interesting uh, story to me because of this. Because there was an image that, that, that Henry VIII had that was wrong, that was inaccurate of the real person. And so I think when it comes to God, it's possible for us to have an image of God, to have our version of God that is wrong. And so what I think, when you think about how do you get the right version of God, uh, you know, some people say, you know, what is God? Well, God's just love or, or God's just this or that. And they just, they have a version of God that really doesn't represent the wholeness of what God really is. And so it's important for us to get a full picture of who God is, to get the right version of God. Now, where do you get the right version of God? You get the right version of God, not from your, your own personal biases, what you think God should be, or what you wish God were, but you get the right version of God by going into Scripture. Now, if I had never seen the Mona Lisa, which I haven't never seen the Mona Lisa, and there wasn't the ability to go uh, on the internet and look a picture of the Mona Lisa, if I'd never seen the Mona Lisa, the only way for me to really know what the Mona Lisa looked like would be to go to Paris, to the Louvre, to the museum there, and stand in front of the, Mo the Mona Lisa. Anybody here ever seen the Mona Lisa? Some of you guys have seen it. I understand it's much smaller than what people think it is. But the only way to, see, to really know what the Mona Lisa looks like is to go to the Louvre to look at the picture. And the only way to really know what God is like is not to look into culture and pull culture's ideas, but the only way to know what God is really like is to go to the scriptures, and the scriptures give us an image of what God is. So I think many, many times we have a wrong version or an incomplete version of God. Now, uh, I think uh, if you look at the uh, Mount Rushmore, there's a, there's a part of uh, Mount Rushmore, we could look at uh, Abraham Lincoln's nose on Mount Rushmore. This is all of a, uh, Mount Rushmore. But do we have a picture of uh, Abraham Lincoln's nose here on uh, Mount Rushmore? Uh, well, if we don't have it, there it is right there. So uh, what, what I think is, I think we could get a partial picture of Mount Rushmore. Just look, if we looked at his nose, looked at Lincoln's nose, uh, that wouldn't give us the full picture. I think many, many times when we are thinking about God, we, we see just a piece of what God is without seeing the whole picture of God. Now that's why I think the Old Testament is an incredibly valuable the Old Testament helps us to see what God is like. The Old Testament is primarily pictures. It's pictures. It's stories 
that give us an indication of what God is really like. So I think it's possible for us to have a wrong version of God or an incomplete version of God. Now, in this story, these stories we read today, there are some versions of God that we can have uh, that are wrong versions of God. The first story is when the uh, Israelites went to battle at uh, Ebenezer against the Philistines and they lost the battle. 4,000 people were killed. And so they called for the ark to help them in the battle. So that's what I think is the first version of God that we can have that's an incomplete version of God. And that's what I call the 911 version of God. The 911 version of God. That is when we feel like uh, we use God as a resource to help us when we're in trouble. We use God as a resource to help us in tr- when we're in trouble. They don't have a real relationship with the Lord at this time in Israel's history. They're not really walking with the Lord. They're not in fellowship with the Lord. They're not communing with the Lord. But when they're in trouble, the Lord becomes their 911 resource. Now, here's what I think is important for us to know. God does not want us to see him merely as a resource But God wants us to see him as a person to relate to and have a relationship with. So sometimes we just sort of use God. And I've seen people that, you know, when they get in trouble, they don't normally go to church or they don't normally pray. They don't normally really, they don't have any really authentic relationship with the Lord on a regular basis. They're not walking with the Lord. They're not, you know, praying. They're not seeking the Lord. They're not coming to church. They're not really in fellowship with other believers. But when a crisis comes then God becomes their 911 resource. And that's what happened in this story. In this story, there is this uh, situation where, you know, Israel is basically apostate. They are away from God. They are not serving God. They're not seeking God. They're not loving God. They're in rebellion against God. But when they have a problem, when they're beginning to lose this battle against the Philistines, then they say, bring the ark. Bring the ark. We want the ark to come. And so they're looking at God as a resource to help them without having a real relationship with them. Now, I believe that God is a very present help in time of trouble, it says in Psalm uh, 47. I believe that God is our help. The Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. So God is someone that we call out to. The Bible says in the book of James, is anyone in trouble? He should pray. So God is a resource to help us when we have trouble, but God is not just a resource. And if we use God just as a resource, then something's basically wrong with our version of God. God is not just a resource. God is just not a 911 phone call, but God is the one who is Lord of our life every single day of our life, and that we're called to have an ongoing, authentic relationship with the Lord at all times in our life. One of my favorite pictures that I have is a picture of me and my granddaughter walking. We're actually uh, uh, looking for a uh, we're looking for a car. Our car at uh, Harrington. Uh, it was this was during the, uh, the the fair, and it was many many years ago when Whittle was small. And you know we're looking for our car. We can't find a car. Anybody ever lose a car anywhere? <laughs> we have no idea where that car is, you know. But we're walking, and she just reaches and takes my hand, and we're just we're just walking. 
uh, just, you know, looking for that car. And that's one of my favorite pictures I have at my office. And I love that little girl so much. She's such an important part of my life. And we have a relationship. We're holding hands and walking. How many know that your call and your relationship with the Lord, you're supposed to be kind of walking with the Lord every single day of your life? Just having communion with him, loving him, praying and seeking the Lord. And he's not just someone that we use as a 911 resource. Now, I think that's important for us to remember. Sometimes I think people look at God as a vending machine. Here's a picture of a vending machine. A vending machine is something that you always kind of want to get something out. And so God is not just a vending machine. And in this story, we see the Israelites kind of treating God that way. Bring the ark. Bring the ark to help us. And they're not really in the right relationship with the Lord. Say this with me. God is more than a resource. God is, a, is the person we're supposed to relate to in an intimate fashion. Let me give you a couple of scriptures about uh, that we're, how we're to know the Lord and to walk with the Lord and to know the Lord in, in, in intimacy. I just love these. It says in, in John chapter 17, verse 2, this is what Jesus said. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So Jesus said eternal life is, is knowing the Father. It's knowing the Lord. And the word know there is gnosos. It's a famous Greek word. It's a big Greek word in the New Testament. And it means to know completely, to know completely, and also to know experientially. To know experientially. Do we have an experience where we know the Lord uh, intimately? In the calling of the apostles in Mark 3.14, Jesus said he appointed the twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So Jesus called his apostles that they would be with him, that they would, they would have fellowship with him. And let me read one more scripture that I think is really, really good. This is in 1 John chapter, uh, three, or cha- 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. And here's what it says. The Apostle John writes, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And here's what John says. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what uh, the Apostle John is saying is that, that we have fellowship. We have communion. We have relationship with the Father. The Father is not merely a resource, but the Father is someone that we walk with and someone that we know and someone that we love. Now here's another part of this. When we have a 911 vision of God, it puts God in the place that we're the center of the universe and God serves us. Now, I think that you know, God does love us, and God does serve us, and God does wonderful things for us. But I'm not sure that the paradigm where we are the center of the universe and God is the one who responds to our needs is the right paradigm. In fact, what I think is the more we make ourselves the center of things, the more depressed we become. And sometimes even our songs that we sing in church, really good songs. I love the songs we sing. But I listen to the lyrics of the songs that are in the modern church today. And I, and I love so many of them. I'm touched by them. But here's what I've noticed about the, the, the modern worship songs. The modern worship songs, which we'll, we love and we'll continue to sing and all that. But one of the, one of the uh, deficits of the songs, the, all, the songs seem to be all about us. 
about how much God loves us, how much God cares about us, and how much God's going to take care of us. And, and all that's wonderful. But I'm here to tell you, the, the songs didn't used to be that way. The songs used to be about the greatness and the grandeur of God. The more we look at ourselves as the center of the universe, the less we're going to have a, a correct version of God. Because the Bible is not about us. If you read the Bible, if you read the book of Genesis, you read the book of Exodus, you read all the books of the Old Testament, read the books of the it's not about us, it's about who God is. It's helping us to understand who God is. So instead of God being a servant to us and us down here, we need to flip that where God is the majestic God that we love and we honor and we look at him and we explore our love for him and love him. Because God is a great God. He's a magnificent God. I don't know if you remember, you know, history, the 14th century. You know, up to that time, the Greeks had the right, uh, had, had, the, had the, the, the way that we looked at the universe. Aristotle, Plato, all those guys said that the earth was the center of the universe, and the sun and the planets revolved around the, the earth. And that was called the geocentric view of the universe. But then this guy came along uh, named Copernicus. Nicholas Copernicus came along and he did calculations. And he discovered that the earth was not the center of the universe, but the, the, the star, the sun was. And we revolved around the star, the sun. And so what I think has happened in our view of God, our version of God in the modern church, our version of God is we have a meocentric universe where we are the center and God revolves around us. Instead of us, God being in the center and us revolving around the God, around the Lord. When's the last time that we've contemplated We've, you know, we all have needs and we're asking God to help us and I would not at all, you know, uh, I remember talking to a guy one time and, you know, he, I, he had all these needs. I said, we need to pray about that stuff. He said, I don't want to bother the Lord. He's so busy. He's so busy. And I had to teach him a little theology there. The Lord has no limits. He can handle your problem and all that. But, you know, here's what we need to be thinking about. When's the last time we sat and we thought about the greatness of God? The majesticness of God. When's the last time when we read uh, Psalm 8 where we look at the heavens and we look at the stars and the psalmist says, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care about him? Because when the psalmist looked at the grandeur of the universe and we looked at how great the God was who made this universe, he thought, how is God even concerned with man? Which he is. So we need to think about the greatness of God. I read this story and I'm going to read it to you because it's better read than, than me just telling this story. Mark Rutland wrote a book a couple years ago uh, called, uh, called uh, 21 Seconds to Change Your World. And Mark Rutland's uh, book was about the Lord's Prayer. And he tells a story in it, and I'm just going to read it to you, about a woman that was depressed. And listen to this. He said, the story, uh, the story is told of a deeply depressed woman who came to see a psychiatrist seeking relief. After five sessions, he wrote her a prescription. Go to Niagara Falls and check into a motel. For five days, all day except for meals, stand at the bottom of the falls and stare up at it. Contemplate its awesome power. Do this, the doctor said, and I will see you when you get back. She stared incredulously, incredulously at the note before exploding in anger. You quack, you absolute charlton. Charlatan, I pay you $100 an hour for every session. And for what? For this? The doctor claimed, calmly explained the remarkable prescription this way. 
I've seen you now for five sessions. I've mostly listened to you and you talk without stopping for an hour each time. All you talked about was you, your dreams, your hurts, your failures, and your guilt. All you need to get well is to see something bigger than yourself. All you need to get well is to see something bigger than yourself. I want you to know that when you read the Bible and you look at the scriptures, and when we analyze the scriptures, we need to remember this. We are not the most important person in the universe. We are not the most significant person in the universe. The most significant person in the universe is the Lord, the creator of all things. He's greater than we are. And if we stand at the top of the pecking order, there's nobody else for us to look at. And we need to reassert God's greatness, that God is a great God. How many remember the great song, How Great Thou Art? How many remember that song? How many know that God is a great God? He's elevated God. He's glorious God. He's majestic. And we need to elevate him to a new level in our worship and our praise. Can you say a big amen? amen? So the 911 view of God is God serves me when I need something, and I don't emphasize a relationship with him. And I think that's an improper version of God. The right version of God is that God is, is the center, and I revolve around him. What did Paul say when he, when he uh, opened most of his letters? Paul opened most of his letters this way. He said, Paul, a bond servant, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. Paul wrapped his life. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's why when you're raising your kids, uh, if you're raising kids right now, if you, if you already raised your kids, congratulations, you're out of that. You know, you got that done with. Um, and now you got grandkids to worry about, you know, and you always warn about, you know, how your kids are raising your grandkids. You ever have those thoughts, you know? And, uh, you know, you just have these little conversations. Oh, I don't know if I do that. And my grandparents, my folks used to, you know, you know power up on me because I was such a mess. And they would always go home and they would say, that my grandmother would say, I didn't see anything he did wrong. I didn't see anything he did wrong. He's such a good kid. And she was right. I was such a good kid. <laughs> but you know what the worst thing you do for kids? Is, is treat them like they're the, they're the center of the universe. And every time they need something, you run and, oh, honey, just take care of everything they need. And you just give them everything they need. And you just like, you just like, just fall over yourself. You don't want those little ones to be unhappy. The problem with that is when they get out of your house, the world's not going to treat them that way. My dad used to tell me, he used to say, he used to tell me this on a regular basis and evidently had an issue that I needed to be addressed. And he used to say to me, Danny, the world wasn't made for you. That was an epiphany to me. I thought the world was made for me. But listen, God is not revolving around you. He is sovereign. He's Lord. That's why people get so mad when something, you know, God doesn't answer their prayer or doesn't turn out the way, way they wish it would. And they get all upset about that. And, and because they feel like that God is, 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 is that he's in customer service. And he's taking care of whatever we want him to do for us. We have a 911 version of God, and that version is not a biblical version. And uh, again, 
You know, I've seen the Lord answer so many of my prayers. But if I go through something and I'm praying and the Lord doesn't answer that prayer. Uh, when I was speaking this week down to a pastor's conference, I talked to the pastors about understanding God's sovereignty. You've got to believe that God is sovereign in your life. When something happens and you pray and it doesn't, you know, work the way you want it to work. God is sovereign. He's Lord. Uh, he knows what he's doing. And we just look at him that way in, in an elevated way. Now. That's the first point. I've got four minutes left. So here we go. We're got done. There's three points here. So did you bring lunch? Anyhow, no, I'm not going to be that long. Okay, second version of God is what I call the app version of God. The app version of God. This is a funny little story. When the, uh, when the Philistines captured the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, when they captured the Ark of the Covenant, they brought it into uh, the, the temple of their god Dagon. Here's a picture of their god Dagon. I think I got a picture of Dagon here. Dagon. Dagon was, this is their god. The Philistines actually, they, were, they came from the island of Crete, and so they, they had a kind of a fish-looking god. But when they settled in the, uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean, they, they turned Dagon into a, a grain god to, to take care of their, their grain uh, and make sure that they could prosper. And so they had this temple to Dagon. And Dagon was there in his temple, and he was made out of stone or whatever. And they bring the Ark of the Covenant. Remember Indiana Jones? They bring the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant has the Ten Commandments in it. And they, it says, they set it beside Dagon. They just, they just were going to add the Ark of the Covenant, going to add Yahweh to their God pantheon. And so they just kind of like, they added God into what they uh, already had, Dagon. Funny, funny story is, you know, they put, they put the Ark of the Covenant there, and there's Dagon. They go in there the next morning, and Dagon's fallen off his pedestal before the Ark of the Covenant. That's really funny. And so, well, they, you know, they pick him up, you know. It's pretty bad when you've got to pick your God up and help him. They picked him up, <laughs> set him on a pedestal, and uh, the next day they came in, and Dagon had fallen again. This time his head had been cut off, and his hands had been cut off. Now, there's an interesting little caveat to that story is in ancient warfare, they would cut hands off of uh, people that they killed, uh, sometimes their heads, for body count and also a display of their power, that they had defeated the enemy. And here is Dagon. It looked like Dagon was the superior god, but Dagon now, in the morning, his head is cut off and his hands are cut off just like a prisoner of war would be. So it's an interesting story. So they just added... Yahweh into their pantheon. There, there's a picture. I didn't even know he had that picture. There you go. So uh, now let me show you a picture of an app, a phone. My, my phone is, I've got, I got, a, I just got a, my apps are everywhere. They're just everywhere. I got apps and I, I don't have them in little boxes and very organized. I'm just not good at that. So it takes me forever to find something. But when we, sometimes the view we have of God is we just add God like an app to our life. And, and like they did in that day, they just put Yahweh in, Ark Covenant, just put him right in there beside, beside Dagon. The Lord is not someone we add to our life. The Lord is someone that becomes our life. Say it with me. The Lord is not someone we add to our life. It's someone who becomes our life. Paul says, when Christ, who is your life, appears... Christ is to be the center of life. Jesus said radical things. We say Jesus had these little nice things to say, and people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like Paul and all the other stuff. Jesus said some pretty rough things. He said, you know, you've got to love me more than you love your father and mother. 
You've got to love me more than you love your son and daughter. Now, that's pretty radical language. It doesn't mean that you don't love your mom and dad. I took my, mom, or took my dad out to dinner uh, on uh, Tuesday night. I hang out with my dad once a week and call him. I love my dad. I love my family. I love my kids. But Jesus said the love and dedication that we have to him uh, is to be so superior that we're to love him more than we even love our own family. And it says in the New Testament, when Jesus called the, uh, the 12 apostles, or when he called the Peter, James, and John, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus is not an add-on. In fact, Christianity never works if you say, I'm going to kind of try God and kind of bring God into part of my life. Christianity never works that way. Christianity only works when you're all in. When you're making him the Lord of your life. In fact, you can't even come into the kingdom of God without making Jesus Lord of your life. You can't, you can't even be, you know, we say, I was raised in an environment where we used to say, accept Jesus Christ, accept the Lord as your Savior. That's not even biblical, to accept Jesus as your Savior. You're not supposed to accept him as your Savior. It says in the, the quintessential verse in, in the book of Romans about how to become a Christian, is if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So we've got to make Jesus Lord of your life. Jesus said to the, uh, you know, uh, Levi or, or Matthew at the tax collector, you know, come and follow me. You've got to leave everything. You've got to follow him. He's got to make him Lord of your life. So that's the, that's the, he's not an add-on. That's a version we have of God. Add God on. But God is more than that. And the last version of God. The last version of God is, is God is not a Valentine's card. God is not a Valentine's card. And uh, these, are, these are, you know, kind of like, Interesting thing, I lost my sermon this week. I spoke, in, uh, I spoke at Oak Ridge on uh, Thursday and uh, I went to get my uh, truck worked on at Pohanka while I was working on my sermon and the, I, I, deleted, I accidentally deleted the whole sermon. So the whole 20 hours of work went up in smoke. So that's why the Valentine card thing came up. So here we go. So <laughs> God is not a Valentine's card. God is, that's a version we have of God. And the Valentine's, Valentine's about love. God is... Just love. God is just love. God loves us. He does love us. He does care about us. But that's Abraham Lincoln's nose on Mount Rushmore. God is more than just love. If you ask most people to say, you know, describe God, they would, their version would be an incomplete, God, an incomplete version of God. God is love. God is love. Well, God is love, but God is also righteous and just. Here's something you need to know. God is just as righteous as he is loving. God is just as righteous as he is loving. All of our songs, none of our songs in the last 20 years are singing about God's righteousness and his holiness. And you cannot really celebrate God's love until you understand his righteousness. His righteousness. Very, very important principle. You say, Pastor Danny, where you get that in the story? Well, in the story, we get this, the last part of the story I read is when the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines, we don't have time to go into all the details. They had all these problems, you know, when they had the Ark of Covenant, you know, they were trying to get rid of it. So they got it. It goes back to this place called Beth Shemesh. And the people out there working in the fields and the Ark, these Jewish people, and the Ark is coming back. They're excited the Ark is coming back. And they, and they celebrate around the Ark. But then it says that some of them looked inside the Ark they lifted up the lid and they looked in and 70,000 of them were killed. 70,000 of them were killed. So that's a story that makes me think about 
the righteousness of God. We are unrighteous. He is righteous. And when the unrighteous encounters the righteous, we are in jeopardy because of His righteousness and holiness. Do you realize that right now around the throne of God, 24 hours a day, the, the cherubim are crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. God is holy. God is righteous. God is pure. So when I read that story and I see where unrighteous man approaches a righteous God, that the wrath of God, the judgment of God, falls upon the unrighteous. Now, here's a picture of the Ark of Covenant. Let me put a picture here of the Ark of the Covenant. I think we got a picture of it. Okay, so just leave this picture here. This is a picture of it. This is what's inside of this box. This, is, this was the thing that the whole story's about. What's inside this box is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. Let me ask you a question. Here, how many have ever broken the Ten Commandments? Uh, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. I was having lunch this week with a young man from Sussex Central uh, that's a part of our church, and uh, he was telling me about the, uh, the profanity in the public school. He said, people just cuss and cuss, and he said, the profanity is awful. And he's trying to live for the Lord, and, you know, he said, you know, I've been really trying to walk with the Lord and all that, and and uh, I was thinking about, you know, what it says in Isaiah, when Isaiah was in the temple and he saw the, the holiness of the Lord and the train of the Lord, the, the, the robe of the Lord filled the temple. And he said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And the, the Lord came and purified his, his tongue and his, uh, with, a, uh, with a, a coal and purified his mouth. And so inside of this, inside of this ark is the Ten Commandments, which we've all broke. And they lifted the lid up to look at it. And because they had violated the righteousness of God, the judgment of God fell upon them. And here's what, these, these things on top are called cherubim. Everybody say cherubim. Now, if you look in Exodus 25, the cherubim are made of gold. This is called the mercy seat. The cherubim are these angels. And it says specifically in the text, we don't have time to read it because we're out of time. It says specifically that the angels, the cherubim, are looking down. They're looking down at the lid. And the reason they're looking down at the lid is because the blood from the offering is sprinkled on the lid. And these angels that the first time they appear is in the book of Genesis where Adam and Eve are uh, kicked out of the garden and they guard the garden, the cherubim. And here they are, they're looking down. And they see the blood, the atonement. And the reason that we can be in right relationship with the Lord and me as a person that have, has been unrighteous, I have been given the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus died on the cross for me and he became my sacrifice. And as he became my sacrifice, uh, he shed the blood. And, it's, and when the Father looks at me now, when I approach the Father, the blood has been shed so I can adequately enter the presence of the Lord. I can enter the presence of the Lord. What they did is they just, they lifted up the lid without any, without any blood. Now here's something I want to say, and I'm, this is it, I'm out of time. I'm gonna, this is it. Right here. it. If Jesus never died on the cross, God would have still loved you. But it would have been impossible for you to ever 
be in his presence, or ever have eternal life. Because God is righteous. He's holy. We need to sing about it. We need to get on our knees. Sometimes when we're praying, we need to get on our knees and we need to lift our hands to a holy God. Because if we believe there's a holy God, God is not a Valentine's card God. You know, there's a thing called universalism. Universalism says that everybody's going to go to heaven. That God loves everybody and everybody's going to go to heaven because God loves everybody. That's a universal, that's a doctrine called universalism. It's a false doctrine. Everybody's not going to heaven because if you lift up the, you lift up the lid and try to go in heaven without the blood, accepting the blood, you'll come under God's judgment. His judgment, his judgment is a reality. And, and when we talk about God's wrath, and the New Testament's full of it. I, I got like 20 scriptures listed. I was going to read it to just tell you it's not an Old Testament thing. God's wrath isn't, you know, when you get, he get mad kicking things off and, you know, you ever, anybody ever got mad, just, you know, just lose it, you know, and you throw something and golf club, you know. That's, it's not that kind of wrath. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean temper. It means settled disposition against wrong. And that's why I'm so thankful for Jesus. So thankful for Jesus. A couple of years ago, Karen and I went to uh, Rome, and we were in Rome, and we got to, you know, uh, hang out in Rome for about a week, and we ate at fine restaurants. And I remember uh, we went in this one restaurant. And we are uh, sitting there, it's on the streets, you know, somewhere near uh, some of those great, you know, buildings in Rome. We're sitting on the street there and we're having, having a wonderful meal in Rome and just her and I, and just great. And I remember uh, what happened was uh, we ordered our food and they uh, had got Karen's salad. They didn't bring her salad. And um, so this Italian restaurant lady, this lady came and I said, hey, wow, great, great meal. Everything's good. I said, we have a little problem. We didn't get our salad. Karen didn't get her salad. And I guess she had a bad day or hated Americans or what. And she just went off. She said, you're the one with the problem. You're the one with the problem. You're the one with the problem. I remember her thinking, oh, we don't need salad. We do not need salad. <laughs> We're good. But you know, the truth is, we are the one with the problem. But the Lord has solved that problem through the blood, shed blood of Jesus. Would you lift your hands right now and just thank the Lord that he's solved your problem. He's solved your problem. He's poured out his grace on you and his love toward you. Father God, we thank you today that we are in right relationship with you, those of us that know you because of the blood, because we don't have to experience judgment you are a righteous God, but your righteous demands have been met through Jesus. And Lord, we're not going to heaven just because you love us. We're going to heaven because your righteous demands have been met. And we're thankful for that. And just take a moment, put your hands down. If you're here this morning and you, don't, you would like to say, Pastor Danny, I don't know that I've really fully accepted the Lord. I'd like to accept the Lord. And I want to take just a moment in this service to pray for you before we are dismissed in just a moment. Uh, just lift up your hand and say, Pastor Danny, would you pray for me? I don't know that I know the Lord. I'm not sure that I would escape the judgment of God because I haven't really embraced the blood of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Just lift your hand up right now if you'd like to receive the Lord. Anybody here this morning? Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Anybody? Thank you. 
Thank you. Let's all just pray this out loud together. If you're not a Christian, this is a moment when you can invite Christ in your life. Just say this with me, Lord Jesus. Just say it out loud. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lord of my life. I've made a mess of my life on my own. And I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me. Say this with me. I believe your blood was essential for my salvation. My sin was great, but your grace was greater. And say this out loud, really from your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my Lord. You're not an add-on, but you're the center of my life. And just lift your hands one more time. Say, Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Lord. Pour out your grace on me. May I experience your amazing grace and your amazing love. We thank you, Lord, for your love and your grace. In Jesus' name, and everybody said amen and amen.